Well, here we are. I'd like for us to pray together before we begin, um, for reasons that I'll explain even more later. But you know why, because we need God's help to understand His Word and respond rightly. So let's pray. Father, we're at the point in the service where we have we've been worshiping you with our song and with our lips, and now we sit down and quiet ourselves so we can hear your voice to us in your word. I pray for that miracle of the Holy Spirit that happens when we are able to actually hear your voice. Help us to receive it and to respond. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you have ever read a book by Francine Rivers? Anybody know Francine Rivers, an author? Jan has in the pit. I see a hand raised up out of the car pit. Okay, just me and Jan. She's great. She's a fiction author. She writes novels. I don't usually read fiction anyway. Let me tell you a little bit about Francine Rivers. She formerly was a romance novelist. She became a Christian and turned that talent to write Christian novels. Now, I know you're thinking, Matt, you're so masculine, I can't picture you reading a book from a woman who wrote romance novels. Well, I'll admit, the covers of her books always, they still look like cleaned up Christian romance novels, and it's embarrassing to read those in public. But, I encourage you, men, to read Francine Rivers, because you will be very much inspired by the way she portrays Christians Particularly men. Well, women too, but I respond most to how she portrays Christian men. Um, I don't think that it's unrealistic. But what impresses me about how she characterizes Christian men is that they always know exactly who they are. They know exactly what they're about. They're able to be decisive. They're able to speak clearly. They're able to take care of their wives, their families. They're able to react well in difficult situations. They just they know who they are and what they're about. And I find something in me that says, man, I want that. Now, where were we? Francine Rivers, men, read romance novels. You with me? Got it? this back up so the title doesn't get crazy. Okay, preaching a sermon, right? That's what I was doing. Okay, anyway, I told you all that about Francine Rivers for a reason. Um, is this working? Can you hear me now? Yeah? Okay. So this is working. Um... <laughs> I want you, and, and I want for myself, to be people who know who we are and what we're about. And that's a lot of what our passage is about this morning. So, as you're flipping to Ephesians chapter 6, just a quick review of where we've been. We're talking about the armor of God, the importance of putting it all on, because we have a very real enemy that really does want to destroy you, your family, and our church. So we're going to flip to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to warn you. You're getting two sermons in one this morning. And I can't promise that it's only going to be the length of one sermon. I think it is, but sometimes I'm wrong. But we're going to talk about the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit this morning. So if you would, if you're able, please stand with me as we honor God's Word as we read it together. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. Finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, 
against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we're grateful for the Word of God. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. We are going to camp out in verse 17 in the remainder of the service. So, my job has basically been during this whole series through the armor of God to try to make these abstract pieces of spiritual armor concrete and understandable. So that's the same task we have before us today as we talk about the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. What is he talking about? When I first read that, what did you assume he was probably talking about? The helmet of salvation. How do you take up the helmet of salvation? Does he mean get saved? Here's salvation, put it on. That's basically been my understanding all along, but you have to be saved to have all the rest of the armor. If you're going to have the truth, if you're going to have faith, and the righteousness especially that comes from Jesus, and the, the readiness that comes from the gospel, you already are saved. So we need to do a little work to figure out what he's talking about. Now luckily, the context of the whole book of Ephesians is just dripping with salvation. It's all he's been talking about. If you've read the book of Ephesians, you know that that's all he's been talking about. The whole book is salvation. Painting different pictures of it. Using different analogies to help us understand it. That's what he's been talking about. To try to help these people understand salvation. And I wonder how well you understand salvation. Salvation is one of those churchy things that we... It's sort of assumed that everyone understands what we mean by it. But maybe some of us could use a little help. I was helped greatly yesterday. I was uh, doing some work and I had my iPod in. And I was listening to a preacher named Alistair Bay. And he summed it up so clearly that I'm going to steal it and tell you what he said. One of the most confusing things about salvation is when does it happen? And, and once you're saved, does that mean that you're sinless now? And if you keep sinning, does that mean you're not saved? And, it seems so difficult to understand. Um, Alistair explained it this way, and I think it's absolutely right. When you accepted Christ, when you made that decision, and said, I'm going to be a Christian, I understand now that I have to put all my hope in Jesus for forgiveness for my sins, eternal life. And I understand that He is rightfully the Lord of my life. I'm giving myself over to Him. In that moment, when you become a Christian, you are, you are saved. From sin's penalty. You're forgiven. You're saved from sin's penalty. Now, in the days, weeks, months, years since you made that decision, you are being saved from sin's power. You grow in your salvation over sin's power. It's called sanctification. So when you made the decision, you were saved from sin's penalty. Your whole life after that is being saved from sin's power. 
And then when Jesus comes back, we will be saved from sin's presence. One day sin won't be an issue at all. So when you made the decision you were saved from sin's penalty, your life thereafter is being saved from sin's power, and then when Christ returns, we will all be saved from sin's presence. That just was a perfect way to put it for me, something I've been trying to express in different ways and never quite able to put it with that clear words. Now what Paul is trying to get at when he talks about salvation in Ephesians, it's clear he doesn't think they understand it. So he's giving them all these analogies. And it is hard to understand because on one hand, to be saved, you have to... Give me some fruit. On one hand, to be saved, you have to have faith. You have to repent of your sin. You have to make a decision. You have to do something. But then on the other hand, God does it. God saves you. God brings you in. God gives you new life. So there's this tension in Scripture that can be really difficult to understand. I mean, who takes the first step in salvation? Is it you stepping toward God or is it God stepping toward you? It's a difficult tension to work out. In Ephesians, Paul is primarily explaining the, the second part of this tension. That is something God does. Let me show you the three analogies he uses. He uses the analogy of adoption, resuscitation, and just gifts. If you look in, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, He, meaning God, predestined us, meaning Christians, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. So in one respect, salvation is like adoption. If you were adopted, you didn't, you didn't make that happen. You were just a kid. Whoever your new father was came in and made that happen, filled out that paperwork, whatever. So in one sense, salvation is like God adopting us. Like children without a dad, God comes in and adopts us. He also uses an analogy of, of I'll call it resuscitation, giving new life. If you look over in, in chapter 2, starting at verse 1, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So in one sense, it's like being adopted. In another sense, it's like you're, you just got pulled from a pool where you're drowning and you're just laying there lifeless. And God resuscitates you. He brings you back to life. Now, if you're laying there not breathing, what can you do to save yourself? You can't do anything. You need God totally. To come and give you life. You're helpless. He uses one more analogy. And it's just, it is not even an analogy. He just calls it what it is, a gift. In the famous verse, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. It's just a gift. You can't boast about being saved. You can't work your way toward it. 
It's given to you. It's a gift. When I was finally decided that I was going to go to Bible college, I was just a kid. I was 18, I guess. And it seemed right I was going to go to Bible college. I gave no thought about how I was going to pay for it. Not out of great faith, just out of great ignorance. I just didn't even think about it. I was like, I'm going to go to Bible college. I had visited the campus. It was awesome. It looked like a lot of fun. I like the Bible. I'll go. I didn't even think about how to pay for it. So I hadn't thought about how to pay for it. I hadn't looked into any options for paying for it. I hadn't even looked into my pockets to see just how broke I was. I didn't talk to my parents to confirm the fact that they weren't planning on paying for it. My dad had already given me the it's no longer my responsibility to finance your dreams speech. Dads, keep that in mind. That's a great talk. And then one night at church, a pastor came up and just handed me a check. And said, uh, you know the Duncans? An older couple in, in my church at the time named the Duncans. And I said, no, I don't know the Duncans. And he was like, well, they wanted me to give this to you for school. And I looked at it and it said $500. And I was 18. I was like, man, $500. That's awesome. I don't even know these people. And then I looked again and there was another zero that I didn't even see. It's $5,000 that these people just gave me. Now that is a gift. I didn't earn it. I wasn't even looking for it. God just gave it to me. And so my response was just to take it and gratitude and use it as best I could. That's how Paul presents salvation here. We who are Christians in this room, we weren't even looking for it. We were just bebopping through our lives. And God just gave it to us. In a very real sense. That's how Paul is presenting salvation. We've been doing this thing on Wednesdays with the youth called Engage. And my whole goal is to engage them with the gospel. Uh, the visual is gears. I'm like, I want, you know how gears get engaged with other gears and stuff starts turning? Uh, it makes sense in my mind. That's a little visual cue for it. I just want so bad to engage them with the gospel. And you don't know if it's working. But this Wednesday, two people prayed to accept Christ. And I heard their stories and I could see that they hadn't rolled up their sleeves and worked their way to God. God had been arranging everything in their lives to draw them into Him. And it was beautiful to see the puzzle pieces coming together. God giving them this gift, adopting them as, as a son and a daughter, and resuscitating them, the new life happening right before my eyes. It's amazing. What's your story of salvation? How did you receive this gift, this adoption, this new life? Have you received this gift, this adoption, this new life? I'll tell you my story briefly. I was saved. I was adopted as God's son at a young age. I was probably, I was right around eight. I don't even remember that well. I don't even remember last week that well. But there was no big lightning bolt amazing event that happened. I kind of remember standing out in my yard and just some thoughts kind of clicked and came together but it's vague. It's not like this big, powerful fireworks, this huge story. It's not like Martin Luther. Martin Luther heard like an audible voice and said, take up your Bible and read it. And so he picked it up and he read a verse in Romans and he was like, ah, I'm saved. Or a guy I listened to named Mark Driscoll says he heard an audible voice and just said, Mark, you're mine now. I want you to, you're a Christian. I want you to marry this Christian girl you're dating. Start a church. 
And he, he claims it's an audible voice. I don't have anything like that. Mine's more like C.S. Lewis's. Has anybody ever heard C.S. Lewis's testimony? I love how he puts it, if I remember it right. Because it, it sounds like mine. He said he became a Christian sort of like you wake up. Like you don't really remember the moment you woke up this morning, do you? Does anybody remember the exact moment you went from unconscious to conscious? No, probably not. You just kind of eventually you realize I'm awake. And that's sort of how it was for me and for C.S. Lewis. It was, there was no big moment. I just sort of realized I'm awake to God. I, I'm a Christian. Maybe that's how it was for you. I don't know. What's your story? I want you to think about it because this is what Paul means by take up the helmet of salvation. I think he means stick your head in there. Uh, I think he means really process it in your thoughts and in your heart and in your life. And I'll give you two passages for why I think he means it this way. The first one is in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 18 through 22. There's two places in this book where he reveals what he's praying for for these people. Here it is in verse 18 of chapter 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. His prayer for them is that, that you would know, that you would fully know and understand the salvation you've been given. This power that you have now. Now that you were adopted as sons and daughters. He has a similar prayer in chapter 3, starting verse 14. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives his name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power, through His Spirit and inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, and here it is, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. He wants you to be just filled up to understand this gift. So often we just we think of salvation as sort of the, the entry point into the Christian life and then you just leave it behind you and you're home to doing whatever you're going to do. But salvation is everything. And our whole lives are growing in our understanding of it. And our enjoyment of it. Just in the first three chapters alone, here are all the aspects of this gift that Paul lays out for the Ephesians. I'm just going to list them out. You who are saved, because of this gift, you have sainthood, grace, peace. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing, holiness, blamelessness, adoption as sons and daughters, redemption, forgiveness, inheritance, a sealed assurance of your salvation, hope, riches of glory, surpassingly great power, God's great love, life, identity with Jesus, Good works prepared for you. Nearness to God, oneness with other believers, peace with people, reconciliation, citizenship in heaven, 
membership in God's house, access to the Father, boldness, confidence, and giftedness. These are just the things that, that Paul lays out in these first three chapters that we have because of the gift God gives us through Christ. Now the helmet, when people read this, they would have understood the helmet was the most ornate, the most identifiable piece of armor. You'd put on all the other armor, and then an armor bearer would give you this helmet. And this would identify you as being with your country or your army. All of these things I've talked about, this is what identifies us as Christians. Salvation, the gift of it, the new identity of it, is who we are. So for you, if you're struggling to find a connect point to this sermon so far, what identifies you? Who are you? What are you about? I shared with you why I like Francis Rivers' novels because it shows me, it reminds me that I can be like these men who know who they are and what they're about. We've been talking about Satan's schemes. I think one of his big schemes is to fill our churches, to fill this church. With unsaved people who think they're saved and saved people who act like they're not saved. If he can fill our church with unsaved people who think they're saved and saved people who act like they're not, then he's one. And I see that scheme working itself out in our church. So I just I challenge you to think about it. Where are you? Have you received this gift? Have you tasted this new life? Are you an adopted son or daughter of God? If you have, if you are, let that just be your identity. I'll share something with you that helps me. Maybe it'll help you. There's times in my job where I, I have to get in my car and I have to drive to a very difficult Scene. Maybe it's a, a scene of intense uh, pain and grief, or maybe it's a really difficult counseling meeting that I don't know how I'm going to handle. Or maybe it's something that's really not that big a deal, but I'm nervous about it anyway because that's how I am. It's very helpful for me as I'm driving to these places to just remind myself of who I am and what I'm about. I am a son of God. I'm his son. I'm given all these gifts of salvation. I'm about introducing other people to Christ and making disciples. And just that reminder of my identity gives me such strength going into these things. It's like putting on a helmet. So maybe some of you would benefit starting your day that way. Reminding yourself who you are in Christ. You're not... The screw-up at work, you can't get anything right. You're not the sum total of all your sins in your past. You're a Christian. Let's make that mean something again. I'm a Christian. I don't want to fill you who are Christians with doubt about your salvation, but I do want to challenge you to think honestly about it. And if you're not sure, I want to invite you to come meet with me this week. Just give me a call. Meet with me. 
just say, you know, I'm not sure. How can I be sure? Come talk to me. Ready yet? Just talk to God and pray for Him to make you sure. Okay, moving on. Second sermon. We've talked about the helmet of salvation. Now we're going to talk about the biggie, the big one, the climax of the armor, the sword of the Spirit. It just occurred to me that there's a giant sword out in the storage closet. I should have brought it in here. It's going crazy with it. Grab your attention back. But I didn't, so just have to hear my voice. Can you imagine if we sent our troops into battle with great armor, great body armor and all that stuff, but no gun? What in the world good would that be? It wouldn't be any good at all. As Christians, we are armed with a weapon. We're not just to be defensive, trying to just survive. We have a weapon. Now read what it says. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now this would be a real easy guilt passage. Where I come down, the line will let me and say, okay, how much did you read your Bible last week? How many verses did you read last week? How many chapters? Did you have a quiet time every morning last week? Did you? It's the sword of the Spirit. How do you expect to survive? Are you crazy? You must read your Bible. Now, how many of you in here know you should be reading your Bibles? You put them up and down so fast, I couldn't pick out the people who didn't raise their hands. We know this. So, I'm not going to give you the guilt side of things today. I'll let the Holy Spirit do that. What I'm going to give you this morning is the key. The key to using the sword of the Spirit. How many of you still, you've been Christian for a long time, you still find it very difficult to use this book? I say use because it's more than just reading it. I mean, to read it, to understand it, to let it just infiltrate your heart, change you, to respond to it, to, to use it in battle with Satan, to, to bring out verses from memory. How many of you have been Christians for decades and you, you still, you don't even know how to pick the thing up? It's like there's a sword on the ground, you've got all your other armor on and you're just kind of looking at it and kick out a little bit, but you just don't know how to pick it up and use it. You don't have to raise your hand. Well, I'm going to give you the key this morning. Look at the verse again. Verse 17. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of what? Of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. Now, as we've gone through this, we've looked at each piece of armor. We've tried to figure out where does it come from? What's it made of? We talk about the truth. The shield, oh, I'm sorry, the shield, the belt of truth keeps you together. The breastplate of righteousness guards your heart. The gospel of peace is what prepares you to move. The preparation of the gospel of peace, you remember that one? Faith shields you. We just talked about how salvation protects your head. 
Now, what arms you in this verse, verse 17? It's the sword of the Spirit. I think Paul mentions it that way because it's the Spirit that arms you. And this might seem like semantics. But it's not that the Bible arms you, it's that the Spirit arms you. The sword is of the Spirit. Now, it is the Word of God, but I think we just totally drop out the Holy Spirit's role in all this. It's the sword of the Spirit. I'll, let me, I'm going to try to explain what I mean. But just notice, this is the first place in all this armor that any part of the Trinity is mentioned specifically. It's like the rest of it we put on, the sword is like the Holy Spirit gives it to us. It's like the Holy Spirit trains us how to use it. Okay, how many of you knew that some of the people who wrote some of the Bible were uneducated people? Three of them were fishermen. Fishermen didn't go even to a community college back then. They just grew up and learned how to fish, and that's what they did. They're uneducated fishermen. Peter, James, and John were all fishermen. How did these men write the Holy Bible that we still read, <coughs> number one bestseller, forever. How did these uneducated fishermen have any part in writing this book? How can you explain that? I've been to school. I've been to school and I like to write. And I've taken classes on it. I've never written anything that has remained more than, than five minutes. How do these uneducated fishermen do this? Well, let me read a couple of verses to you as we track down the answer to that. 2 Timothy 3.16 may be familiar to you. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The main part to get there is the first part. All Scripture is inspired by God. Somehow, God miraculously works through these men who wrote these 66 books. Works through these men to be able to write this down. It was miraculous. Or look at 2 Peter. You don't have to flip there. Just listen. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. 2 Peter, not 1 Peter. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. The Holy Spirit moved these ordinary men and miraculously enabled them to write Scripture. That's amazing. This is a, this is a miracle book. In my Old Testament class, I had a great teacher, and he took us through and just showed us all of the, the beautiful unity of all those Old Testament books. How they, they, there's perfect bookends, and it's just, it's beautiful, it's amazing. It truly is a miracle. Supernatural. Now here's my big point. How those uneducated fishermen were able to write Scripture is how you and I are able to use Scripture. The same Holy Spirit that inspired the writing of Scripture Enables you to read it, to understand it, to absorb it, to use it, respond to it. How uneducated fishermen were enabled to write scripture 
is how you and I will be enabled to use it like a sword. I was going to read another passage, but my time's running out. But the other passage basically explains that the Holy Spirit bridges the gap between us and God. You approach a book like this, and you're like, I can't. You know, this is like God's Word, and I've just been playing Xbox for hours. That's my speed. I can't be reading God's Word. The Holy Spirit bridges that gap. You need to be educated so that you can read. That's true. But you also need the Holy Spirit to be able to hear God's voice in those words. To try to put some meat on this. Imagine with me that Jesus Christ is here in the flesh. Imagine that he's here. You can touch him. You can, you can pat him on the back. He's here. And he's going to go with you to help you understand the Bible. He's going to teach you. Do you think that would be helpful? Do you think that might be helpful? I actually do want a little interaction because I see people nodding off. Okay. <laughs> must be extra boring today. Alright, I'm going to read you another passage even though let's get near the end. In John 14, when Jesus is, is heading out, he knows he's going to be leaving soon. He says in verses 16 and 17, he explains that, you know, I'm leaving, but I will ask the Father and he will give you another help that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and he'll be in you. And then a little later he says, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance of all that I said. He will teach you all things. So no, we don't have Jesus in the flesh. He's not going to meet with us at Dilworth Coffee and, and you know, sip a latte with you and, and talk you through how to understand the Scripture. That would be great. But it's not going to happen. But He's made provision. He has given us the help. The Holy Spirit who will teach us all things. The same one that enabled the writing of it will enable the reading of it. So... I'm going to just wrap this up. The main thing I want you to think about, those of you who have forever avoided your Bibles or tried and failed at reading them, consider that maybe, maybe the problem isn't an education problem, you're just not good at reading. Maybe the problem isn't a time thing, you don't have time really to study. Maybe the problem is a faith thing. A dependency thing. Maybe your problems with the Bible can be solved by turning to it more humbly, asking the Holy Spirit to help you. Because that's what He's here for. And then you can wield the sword in the battle like Jesus did in the wilderness. Satan came up and tempted him three times, and these three times Jesus just knocked it away with specific scripture. That could be you and me. So take up the helmet of salvation. Know who you are and what you're about in Christ. Some of you need to just stop right here and be saved. And take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Participate in the mirror of interacting with this book. And it is a mirror. So let's pray together now for God to make this miracle happen in our lives. Father, thank you for 
salvation. I pray for those in this room who are saved, who are Christians. Help them to understand the height and depth and length of this gift that you've given them. I pray that you would reveal to those who are not Christians in this church that they are not saved. Maybe they've been doing the church thing for decades, but have missed the gospel, have missed Jesus, have not been adopted, have not been brought to new life. Lord, please give them that gift. Lord, help us to take up the sword of the Spirit as a church. Help us not to be weak, but help us to depend on the Holy Spirit. To read and understand and respond and live by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.